Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to support The Box of Oddities, we would be eternally grateful. Become a premium subscriber. Go to theboxofoddities.com and get signed up. You will get ad-free episodes. You'll get them a day early. You'll get a bonus episode every month. And you'll get access to The Box of Oddities back channel. Direct contact to us. And we appreciate it so much. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Don't, don't put your broken fingernail... On, on my recording console. That way we both suffer. No, no. It hurts so badly. Kat just broke her fingernail just as the intro music was playing. <laughs> broke it right off. It hurts. And then casually placed it right on my works, work surface area. Listen, you clip your nails in our kitchen, flinging them everywhere. And you're always like, Oh, no, I'm getting them in the trash can. No, you're not. 100% of the time, you are not. Where would you have me clip my nails? I don't know. In the bathroom, like a normal human person? Who clips their nails in the bathroom? That's not hygienic. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry that happened to you. I had a bad day today, too. I uh, was driving back from a doctor's (laughs) appointment, and I was going across what's called the 395 Bridge between Bangor, Maine and Brewer, Maine. And it's a it's a pretty tall bridge over the Penobscot River. And I have one of those uh, truck bed caps on the back of my pickup truck right. to keep the snow out. Well, apparently uh, it wasn't secured as properly as it should have been. <laughs> and I got on the bridge and the wind caught it and blew it off the back of my truck in the middle of traffic. I was going 55. Oh, man. I don't think it, you're supposed to be going 55 across that bridge, by the way. Yeah, no, I think um, it's 70. But, um, yeah, but you didn't hit anyone. It didn't no. go off the bridge, I was, right? I saw it in the rearview mirror Which flying off the back of... blows my mind because you are not observant in what's going on around you <laughs> even a little bit. So it blows my mind that you even noticed that it happened. My first thought is... Oh, no, it's going to hit a car. Right. But there was very limited traffic behind me, which was oh, good. My good. My second thought was, oh, no, it's going to fly off the bridge into the river. I'll never see it again. Uh, but I see it hit the pavement and bounce around a little bit. So I go down to the next overpass and turn around and head back. And then I, I couldn't see it because there's a divider. So I had to drive all the way past and mm-hmm. go back down to the exit on the in the other direction and circle back around again. Right. And when I got there... Uh, not only did it not hit traffic, not only did it not blow off the bridge, but it had hit the ground and skidded up against the barrier, all nicely folded up in, in like it was ready to be shipped. It doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I'm the luckiest boy ever. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. What is that term about uh, uh, rose shitting, uh, shitting roses in shit storms or something like that you're i've never heard that you're one of those rose shitters is what i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I've never heard that saying before. It reminds me of uh, was we got a message from somebody that was talking about sayings that... Uh, yes, that her grandmother used. One of them was, uh, it's colder than a... It's uh, colder than a well digger's yes, ass. Colder than a well digger's ass. I really like that one. I've heard well digger shovel, but but never ass. <laughs> my uh, my mom used to always say, "It's hotter than three a bed." Three a bed. Hotter than three a bed. Sure. Yeah. It gets hot when you have to share a bed with others. I never thought of it that way. What did you think it meant? No, I I, I knew that, but I was thinking more in terms of, uh, you know, because it was cold, so people would get in bed together to stay warm during the frontier days. And now I'm starting to think my mom was involved in menage a trois. Oh, you think so? Yeah, thanks for that. (laughs) Well, she was a sassy lady. (laughs) She was a sassy lady. (laughs) She was a forward-thinking sassy lady, and I believe it. Good for her, I say. (laughs) All right, so I go first, my love. Bruce David Vernoff was born on June 24th, 1960. And he unfortunately died July 3rd, 1995 at the age of 35 years. He's buried in Mount Sinai Memorial Park in Los Angeles County, California. Bruce died suddenly in 1995 from an accidental overdose of prescription medication. He was a young husband, and though he and his wife, whose name was Gabby, had no children, they were making plans for a family. They were hoping to have children at some point, but they were kind of holding off until the conditions were a little bit better for them. I don't know if it was financial or what, but but they were planning on having a family. But then Bruce suddenly and unexpectedly died before that could happen. Now, oftentimes you hear stories about this where the surviving widow is able to have a child uh, after her husband has passed because, you know, they use her husband's sperm that was frozen in anticipation of, say, an impending death or an illness. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who had to go through um, a bone marrow transplant and they had to, you know, um, what do they do? You know, like radiated. Yeah, right. So it killed everything. Yeah. And he was afraid that, well, he wouldn't have been able to have children if he survived. So he stored some of his sperm and and this was 30 years ago, and he recovered. He's still alive, and he has three children now because that happened. But now this is your friend? This is my friend, yeah. Your, your friend whose life you helped save, that uh, guy? Um, is, is that? Whatever. Oh, anyway. well, okay, we'll tell that story some other time. Anyway, because uh, Bruce's illness, well, it wasn't an illness. It was an overdose and an accidental overdose on prescription meds. They were not anticipating so they did not um, store any any frozen semen. Sure. A lot of people don't. Yes, that's true. Yeah. In 1999, four years after Bruce had died, Brandolyn Vernoff, Bruce's biological daughter, was born. Four years. A long pregnancy? She is the very first baby born using sperm from a dead man. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's called post-mortem sperm extraction. Oh. Yeah, and it's been going on since the late 70s. In the late 70s, Cappy Rothman, a Los Angeles urologist. Great uh, name. A tremendous name. Um, became known for uh, his work in the field of infertility. He, uh- he became um, known for extracting sperm from living men and that gave him detailed knowledge of the male reproductive anatomy. Interesting. I when you said that there was a doctor named Cappy, I pictured a lady. So he he got quite a reputation as being known as somebody who was good at that. Within six weeks of his practice, uh, he was booked up to six months in advance in his work with uh, fertility okay. patients. Then. A well-known politician's son was left brain dead after a car accident. Cappy said, I got a call from the chief resident of neurosurgery at UCLA. He said, I have a strange request. This politician would like to have his son's sperm preserved. Can you do it? This was 1979. So Rothman came up with uh, not one, but three options. Number one, administer a drug that would make the entire body convulse and hopefully induce ejaculation. Okay. That had never been done before. Not intentionally, anyway. Remove the man's reproductive organs and go looking for sperm. Sure. 
Okay, there's got to be some in there, right? Right. Or because the brain dead man still had some bodily functions, manual stimulation. Yeah. Yeah. He said, I remember there was a pause at the end of the phone and the neurosurgeon said, Doc, I've been asked to do a lot of things as chief resident of neurosurgery, but if you think I'm going to jerk off a dead guy, you're crazy. Yeah, I think that would be my response. Yeah, mine too. I mean, personally, I think the whole thing's very strange. Um, Again, trying to be respectful of people who lost their child. And I understand it's a very stressful time. I just think it's, uh, it's an interesting choice. But it wasn't until 20 years later that Brandlin became the very first baby born using sperm that was taken from a person who was legally dead. Our bodies don't die all at once. We know this. Sure. They die in parts. Early scientific literature says, uh, advises doctors to extract and freeze a sperm sample within 24 to 36 hours of death. But case studies show that under the right conditions... Viable sperm can survive well beyond this deadline. Mm. uh, Rothman talks about a man who died uh, in cold water kayaking. His sperm were in good shape a full two days after he had died. And if they died in a peat bog, who's to say (laughs) it couldn't be hundreds of years? Wow. Hundreds of years. That's a creepy thought, Mm. but fascinating. Peat bog. In April of 2015, doctors in Australia announced that a very healthy, happy baby was born from sperm removed 48 hours after the death of the father. Now, I don't know any baby when it's born that's happy. A healthy baby, perhaps. Oh, (laughs) I see what you're saying. The sperm doesn't have to be. They don't have to be zippy and perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Just alive. Right, because it doesn't have to do that whole beat the other sperm to get in thing. Right, right. It's just given access. Yeah, exactly. It's like a VIP line at the clubs. (laughs) It is. It's like TSA pre-approval. Right, which we have found invaluable. Swimmers (laughs) freeze and thaw much better. Sluggish sperm can still create a, a pregnancy for the reasons that you are saying when they inject a single sperm into an egg. So- how does this how does this work exactly? Well, again, according to courts, there are several main ways that sperm are harvested, including needle extraction. Um, that, of course, just by the name, you can tell what that means, and it makes me want to cross my legs. Um, that's often used in live patients because of the minimal invasiveness. It, but that doesn't matter in dead people. Normally, they don't really care. Is it much. not as effective as these other methods? No, it's it's just as effective. So why bother, like, uh, you know, uh, pumping them full of drugs that'll make them shake out all their juices uh, if you could just put a needle in there and take it out? Back when he was considering those alternatives, mm-hmm. it had never been done before. Okay. So since then, they have uh, got it. They've fine-tuned the method somewhat. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's the needle. But you'd think that would be one of the first choices, right? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Go ahead, please. Another one of these pro- approaches is to actually extract the testes or epidermis surgically. The epidermis is where the sperm hang out in order to mature. Okay. This tissue is um, a very popular target. The doctor will remove surgically the epidermis. And I don't know why they bothered to say surgically, because if the doctor's removing it from a dead person, it doesn't really matter how surgical the precision is. (laughs) Um, And then they milk it Mm, or otherwise separate the sperm from the tissue. Sure. Or you can take the epidermis or a piece of the testicle. In fact, in some cases, they've taken the whole testicle and just frozen it. Just frozen the whole whole testicle. I thought you were going to say, just put the whole testicle in the uterus. Just (laughs) see what happens. Yeah. (laughs) Put it in there and shake her up a bit. Put her on a trampoline. Let her jump up and down a little bit. Oh, I'm glad that's not what you said, though. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And the final option is rectal probe ejaculation. Oh, that sounds terrible. Also known as electroejaculation. The doctor inserts a conductive probe into the man's anus until it is next to the prostate. 
And then they shoot a jolt of electricity, which causes muscle con uh, contraction that stimulates ejaculation of sperm through the normal channels. Again, why was this considered before, let's just put a needle in his testicle? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What is going on? Yeah, what makes a person choose that method over the needle? Also, this sounds very familiar to me. Yeah, you know why? No. Because I got this idea from a... Um, an episode of Law and Order. Law and Order, SVU. SVU that we yes. watched uh, a week or so ago. Because the whole premise of the show was this woman was uh, drugging rich, famous people. That's right. And then sticking a prod up the guy's butthole and forcing him to ejaculate when he was unconscious. Uh -huh. And then selling the sperm to a, a sperm bank. That's right. And uh, they referenced in it in the episode that it had actually happened in the 1970s, in the early 70s, there had been a baby born. And I went, oh, mental note. But when I checked, that wasn't really the case. The case was the first uh, post-mortem sperm retrieval was in 1979. The first baby was born in 1999. Got it. Wow. Well done. What are the laws? What are the guidelines? There aren't any. <laughs> Most of the laws on the books were written before this technology existed. I feel like I feel like you should have to have someone's permission to mm. do that. Like don't don't you think if it's a child like if it's your teenage son and you, you know, want to try to respect the families. Mm -hmm. Um all right, fine. Mm, yeah, right. But um if if it's an adult person maybe they didn't want to have kids. Maybe they didn't want that, you know, Maybe they had lied to you about who they were mm. and their medical history. And maybe you don't. Oh, I, I'm just saying it's not a good idea. Well, it opens up a whole proverbial can of worms. Los Angeles Times wrote in 2009. Now, Brandolin is 20 now. Oh, wow. Yeah, doing the math. Yeah. In 2009, when she was 10, she learned uh, that she was not entitled to her father's Social Security benefits, according to a federal appeals court panel. The Ninth U.S. Circuit of, uh, Court of Appeal upheld a lower court ruling that the child, Brandilyn Vernoff, was ineligible for the federal survivor payments under California law, which considers factors in addition to biology in determining inheritance rights. Right. California law grants inheritance rights only to children conceived within 300 days of the parent's death, the appeals court said. Um, the panel also said there was no evidence that Vernoff had given written consent for yeah. his sperm to be used to impregnate his wife. Now, she presented videotapes of him when he was alive because otherwise it would be really weird. But he was talking <laughs> about how he wanted children and they were planning their family. Right, but he wanted to be there with his children. Like, that's, I think that was the idea, that right. he wanted to father and be a father to children. Now, the court said that because he gave no written consent, mm. that she wouldn't qualify. Consent, in turn, demonstrates a willingness to support the child and an intent to create the child, the court said. Now, if it had happened in Arizona, no problem. Arizona was like, sure, not a, not a big deal. They don't have any laws like that. An intent to create the child. Ooh. Yeah. That gets rough, though. It gets If you're slippery. talking about females, mm -hmm. then, I mean, there is not always the intent to create a child. It's a slippery slope, isn't it? Well, I don't like the term slippery slope because I think it's all right. It's, it's, a, to... it's a skittish hill, <laughs> <laughs> like, like a, a hill who's very anxious about things. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was that? Calm down, hill. God. Medium.com says in some countries, France, Canada, and Germany, it's against the law. In others, like the UK, it requires written consent from mm. the dead man. Um, assuming, I'm assuming it's before he died. Sure. Many other countries don't have clear-cut rules. They may allow sperm harvesting for implied consent based on hearsay. Like, say, for example, a woman says that her dead partner always wanted children, like in Israel. That's good enough. They, okay. they can allow sperm to be collected from uh, organ donors, even though there's surely a difference between organs that can save lives and 
you know, sperm cells that can create them. That's pretty weird when you think about that. Apparently, if I'm reading this correctly, in Israel, they can harvest sperm cells from a dead body like an organ transplant. Oh, okay. That's weird. I don't know about that. But again, with your consent or without your consent? Without your consent. Oh. Yeah, right? That seems a tad invasive. Indeed. Or intrusive. The doctors say that uh, when they're performing this, they try to gather as much information as they can to answer questions like, did he like children? Was he ever a sperm donor? Did he plan to marry his fiancée, for example? Were they painting a nursery? But in the end... You have to find a urologist that's willing to do this uh, this kind of work, and it takes more than one phone call to do that. Sure. Wow. It is a, an interesting thought exercise to, mm-hmm. to roll around. What about when it's not a partner seeking sperm, but parents who are asking the hospital to do this mm. because they want grandchildren? There was a really well-known case in Israel Uh, Parents collected sperm from their son, who was a soldier. His name was Kevin Cohen. He was shot dead in Gaza in Mm. 2002. Then they asked for female volunteers to offer their bodies for insemination. When they found a suitable candidate, they used their son's sperm to impregnate this woman, somebody he had never met. Um, They described their grandchild as a dream come true. Did they have custody of their grandchild? After the child was born? Correct. Yes. So, uh, mm, mm. I mean, I get the emotional turmoil. That's the thing. But I feel like that opens up a lot of opportunity for... It's a skittish hill. Issues. <laughs> it is a skittish hill. Yeah. It's just like, okay, well, what, what about it being a biologically your son's kid is like why i don't know i i don't know well i think a lot of it has to do with carrying on the family name and you know that sort of thing that's i i know you know a lot of people are kind of like well you know what's the big deal but that's kind of part of our dna it's, it's how we evolved to survive was to get the next generation forward. That's, that's our main mission in life, biologically speaking. Oh, sure. I get that. But, you know, we, we also have learned and evolved in a lot of ways that the ability to go, huh, this weird. <laughs> now, sometimes there are issues with the dead man's parents. Uh, between the dead man's parents and his uh, romantic partner. In 2016, an Australian family fought with uh, the live-in partner of their son after he died by suicide. She claimed the pair had planned to have a family, but the parents were skeptical. Uh, Sperm was extracted and stored while the court dragged the case on for a while. Um, Eventually, the sperm were destroyed. It's such a delicate thing because every relationship and situation and and person grieves differently and I don't know. In 2015, there was a similar situation, but it was in reverse. After a soldier died in training, his parents collected his sperm, but the soldier's widow refused to carry the baby of her dead partner or allow his parents to use the sperm anywhere else. The matter ended up in court. It was a bitter fight as you can well imagine. Ultimately, the parents won to use their son's sperm to inseminate a stranger. Huh. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I wonder why the wife didn't want the the sperm used with someone else. That That is a good question. That's hard to understand. And, and not being in that situation, I don't think we can, either one of us can fully appreciate right, no. the, the myriad of emotions that are running through her mind. Right. She's lost her husband. Um, maybe, you know, she just doesn't want to have kids right now or, or ever. And yet because it was her husband, she doesn't want another woman to carry her husband's baby to, I don't, I don't know. Or maybe she knows something about her husband's parents and doesn't want (laughs) them raising a baby. Maybe. I'm just saying there are, there's an unlimited number of ors in these situations and it's impossible to to decide for someone else. So I guess you kind of have to go like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. 
in keeping with this whole baby theme, here are some outlawed baby names. I love this. Number five, Nutella. In 2015, a French couple thought that'd be a good idea and named their daughter Nutella. But one French judge wasn't having it and insisted that the name could only lead to mockery. So they just, they, they changed it to Ella. Number four, New Zealand has no time for anyone's bizarre baby naming shenanigans. So they uh, send out a list, or they have a list available uh, via the government that is a list of requested names that have been deemed just too wacky. <laughs> and in 2013, <laughs> anal was added to the list. <laughs> Did somebody really, somebody really try to name their child anal? Maybe it was like anal or something, and they just didn't oh. consider like how it was spelled and sure. how it would actually be read. Okay. I don't know. That's what I'm hoping. Otherwise, what? Number three in uh, Mexico, Sonora, actually. They compiled a list of banned baby names taken straight from the state's newborn registries. Here's one. Robocop. Yes! I love it. Their citizens are no longer allowed to name their child RoboCop. I think it's kind of a rad name. But there is one kid out there named RoboCop. Nice. His name was grandfathered in. Pretty rad. I'm into it. RoboCop hurricane walls. <laughs> RoboCop viper walls. <laughs> I don't know. I'm into it. Okay, what are we on? Number two. Two. Number two, as is the case with many countries, China does not allow symbols or numerals to be included in baby names. The at symbol uh, has been banned <laughs> as a Chinese name. Uh, it sounds similar to uh, or being translated to the phrase love him. And one couple felt that the symbol was a fitting name. The Chinese government said, no, no. And number one, this was another name that officials in Sonora, Mexico, discovered in the newborn registries. Um, they made the, uh, the heroic decision to ban the name circumcision. Sure. Circumcision. Yeah. In Iceland, if you want to uh, get a name that isn't listed on their national register of persons, um, you can actually pay a fee like vanity plates. <laughs> I like that. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer this message is sponsored by green light you know as your kids get older there are some things about parenting that gets easier i remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece if you put your pants on i'll give you some fresca and when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right it's a lot easier to manage them Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. 
Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Box of Oddities. The question is, why? Check this out. I found this on the uh, Freaks of Box of Oddities page on the old Facebookers. The group? Yep, the group. The group, not the page. Ben writes, I owned a restaurant, had a cook working for me that was a bit odd, very quiet, would just stare at people. As I was working next to him one night, I kept trying to start conversations with him, and after getting one or two syllable answers from him for the entire shift, I finally stopped. I looked right at him with a grin and said that he's making me a little worried that he has bodies in his basement freezer. He stared into my eyes and quietly said, I don't have a basement. And then went about his work. <laughs> Two days later, he quit. And I always wondered about that kid. Mm. Yeah, you may have met a serial murderer. <laughs> or at least a weird guy with a sense of humor. I like that. By the way, if you're not a member of the uh, freak group, just uh, send a request and our admin, Sam, will click you through. Um, if, apparently, a lot of people who don't like or even know of the podcast are part of the group um, and just realized it the other day. And we're like, wait, is this something to do with a podcast? And yeah. people were like, yeah, you should listen to it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then the thread went on. There were several people like, wait, what? What? <laughs> I thought this was just about weird people like us. Well, it is, and so is the podcast. And I love that, though. It's obviously a welcoming place. Yeah, it's pretty great. Digging on it. What you got for me? What, what you, what? What you what you got for me? What 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 you got for me? Oh, so nice. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about buzzkashi. Buzzkashi. Yes. Uh, buzzkashi is hard to say, so I'm probably going to abbreviate it in some way as we move along because I get tired very fast. I understand. So, uh, buzzkashi is the national sport of Afghanistan, and that is the country where it is thought to have originated. There are similar games known as Kokpar, Kapkari, and Ulak Tartyish. <laughs> In Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, um, there's also uh, other games like this uh, in Turkey, where it is played uh, mainly by communities originally from Central Asia. Literally, the the name Buzkashi, Buzkashi, 
B-sport. Literally, it translates to goat pulling in Persian. Goat pulling. That so, sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> it's not like that. Don't be gross. Well, you had to know that's exactly the first place my mind was going to go to. You no, know, I didn't. But I'm glad to know it now. So each ethnic group has their own special way of playing this game. And there are a number of different facets of the game that change depending on where you are. It's like if you played Foursquare in Bucksport, you played differently than Foursquare in, let's say, Lemoyne. These are main towns, now, by the way. For um, those of you listening in Kurdistan. <laughs> legend has it that the game was first invented centuries ago when Afghan tribes would ride on horseback to snag uh, rival tribes' goats from their flock. And so, okay. So the, um, the basic idea of this game remains the same, regardless of where you're from or what you call it. Players on horseback, sometimes yaks, are struggling to take control of a headless goat carcass in an attempt to drag it around a designated uh, area and get it in a hole or to a flag or back to a designated zone. And it's a real headless goat carcass. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Is it a freshly dead headless yep. goat carcass? Yep. That's part of the thing. We're getting there. Okay. Now, according to- Why don't they to just use the head? You know, just that's not the thing. Maybe that's how soccer was invented. Okay. Go ahead. So according to farwestchina.com, in most cases, it's a headless goat carcass, but um, some groups also use a calf or a sheep carcass. Is there an official weight? Um, see, that is part of the difference between what kind of carcass you use. Uh, from what I understand, in like the higher levels mm -hmm. of play, mm -hmm. they'll more often use a calf because it's heavier. I see. Just now realizing that this might have deserved some sort of trigger warning. Um, this is upsetting. Um, <laughs> most games are played on horseback. They can also be played on yakback. Um, in some cases, there is a field that is marked, just like a soccer or football field or whatever. Um, but in some situations, it's played on an open field where there are no boundaries. In some countries, it's two teams against each other, and in other countries, it's every man for himself. But the the idea pretty much across the board is the objective is to gain control of the carcass. Is there specialized sporting equipment involved, like protective uh, groin wear? Um, not groin specific, but there is protective wear, Okay, which we will get to. There are rules... Uh, to keep the players safe, but it can get very fierce. And there's no official timeout in this game, so players depend on supporters to carry them off the field or uh, get their horses off the field safely if something is to happen to them during gameplay. Wow. Yeah. Um, players do try to pad themselves, uh, especially the legs and crotch. Um, and when you have a whole bunch of horses just kind of mashing up against each other, your legs can get damaged pretty easily. Um, so a lot of cases, they'll wear tall boots and then jam sticks or metal stakes <laughs> down into the boots so Ooh. their legs can't just, you know, be bent hither oh and wither. Wow. Thither? Hmm. In some parts of the world... Headgear is considered unmanly, uh, but riders in the former Soviet Union often wear salvaged Soviet tank helmets for protection. So a beast sporty player is called a chapandaz. It's a C-H-A-P-A-N-D-A-Z. Chapandaz. Uh, he is mainly uh, considered to be a skillful, very manly man, mm -hmm. um, built like sturdy. Mm -hmm. um, and the ideal chop and does, <laughs> the ideal player is usually in his 40s. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Because the way you were describing it, I'm picturing extremely well-built, athletically inclined, physically trained, 
like American football players. Right. That are like in their 20s usually. Um, The thing is, you don't have the life experience or the... To drag a dead headless goat around? Buzz Kashi life experience, playing experience to be good at it and have made it to... You know, okay. the higher levels. Well, I, I do appreciate that skill and experience supersedes strength and brawn in this sport. Well, no, you're supposed to be strengthly and brawny. You just don't have to be young. Okay. I think I'd hate this sport. Sometimes older men can be brawny. That's true. I don't know any, but yeah, <clears throat> that is true. So normally, not well, not normally, not always does the player bring his own horse to the game. Horses are often owned by landlords and very wealthy people who are providing the horses, uh, the training facilities and such. Um, that's their part of the, oh. the game. It's kind of like race horses. You know, the jockeys don't often own the horses. Right, right. Or renting a golf cart. Yes. Except I don't know. Mm, I've, I know people who owned golf courses. Um, I don't know that how much pride they really took in in sure. the rental of their golf carts mm. whereas in these situations the 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 pride that comes with having a winning horse in a game of be sporty sure um it's it's in taint it's it, intense it's in taint it's in taint you said taint <laughs> yep the horses can cost you know fifty thousand dollars oh uh, but a healthy playing horse can last for 20 years mm. Uh, just going to interject, this is uh, educational. It is interesting to learn about cultures. I think this is horrific, and I don't believe that horses should be involved in sporting events. I'm trying to say all of this with the utmost respect and <laughs> kindness toward people who are cool with this. So, moving right along. The game consists of two main forms. One is considered more to be more simple and and that is the the more frequently played version. Like the Pop Warner version. Yes. The goal is simply to grab the goat and move in any direction until clear of all the other players. Do they have youth leagues? You know, um, from what I read, um, uh, there was a great article on uh, NPR.com about how children grow up wow. with dreams of being like... That's wild. Like the ultimate Buzkashi player. No kidding. I wonder if they have like merchandise, like they the kids wear shirts with the names of their favorite uh, Bukaki player on the back of it. Nope. What is it called? They're enthusiastic, yes. That's cool. Yeah. Though I don't know that they wear like jerseys or anything. Because the, the players themselves don't wear jerseys, though obviously they don't wear like street clothes. They have like an outfit that they wear, um, which is quite... You know, we talked a little bit about the boots and how they're protective. There's also a very thick coat involved that helps protect the body. Um, sometimes a helmet, depending on the, the part of the world and the game that they're playing. There's also a whip involved. What? Yep. And you're not allowed to use that on the other people, um, which well. I think if you're going to be whipping anyone, it should be the other players, <laughs> but whatever. Um, shin padding, shin guards, sturdy leather boots, and knee pads. The whip, generally, when they're not using it um, to fend off opposing horses, uh, generally they'll carry it in their mouths. Okay. So they they use the whips to hit the opponent's horses. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. They should just hit the players. Right? Yeah. And uh, the whole putting something in in your mouth, holding it with your teeth, uh, scares the bejesus out of me. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, ugh. when I was a kid, we were like maybe 15. We were all water skiing at, at a friend's camp. And uh, one of the kids I was with. Yep. I know where this is going and I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah. We call him Gummy. <laughs> oh, God. I don't care for that at all. I have, though, recurring um negative thoughts about losing my teeth and it's one of those things that i can't Mm. control it just happens over and over again i picture myself smashing into granite countertops constantly (laughs) and my teeth 
just all coming out. <laughs> really? Yeah. You're just walking around, these thoughts pop into your head. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, I can Especially imagine. Especially like at night, if I'm trying to get to sleep, I, I see it over and over again. And that's why like the whole concept of like curb stomping, or, oh, you yeah, know, it's yeah, like, yeah. I can feel it in my stomach how much it upsets me because it's something that haunts me is the idea of having okay. my teeth smashed out. Sorry, I brought up that water skiing incident. Cool, thanks. All right, so the calf. <clears throat> the calf is uh, usually chosen specifically for gameplay, um, and the it's a whole ceremony. Uh, normally, they're beheaded and disemboweled, and then they have uh, like half their limbs cut off, mm. and then they're soaked in cold water for 24 hours uh, before play to toughen them. Um, usually, sand is packed into the carcass to give it extra weight. Uh, a goat is used if there's no calf available. But a calf is preferred because it's less likely to disintegrate during gameplay. Okay. And I'm guessing they don't have a barbecue at the end of the um, of the sporting event that they just dispose of this carcass. There's no use for it after the That's game. That's an interesting question. I do not know the answer to that. I don't mm. know what they do with it afterwards. Wow. Um, but I know that there's no like post-game celebrating mm-hmm. from from the well. Uh, again, because the game varies uh, from place to place, and in the version of the game that you're playing, I can't say that this is across the board. But uh, from one specific. Uh, player that was profiled in an article that I read um, when at the end of the game that he played in, there was a winner. It was him. And he just left the field and went home. Like there was no post game celebrating. There was no awarding of things. He got his money. He's gotten his fancy car and he left. Wow. Like there's nothing. So this isn't a team sport. This is an individual. Like there's one winner. No, I mean it can be a team or okay. it can be All right. Every but he man was like the himself. like this guy was like the MVP or something. Well, it's a, no, in his case he was the winner. Okay, so all right, so it's both. It depends okay. on where gotcha. where you're playing. All right. Yeah, the cool. version that you're playing. So it is a ritual, a ceremony, a test of strength and cunning and courage and uh, many Afghan boys grow up with the idea in mind that this is, you know, they're going to they're gonna play baseball, that kind of thing. Right, sure. I want to be a major league player. Right. Um, and because it's uh, reportedly from their history, it's part of their culture having, you know, fought with other tribes and it's very deeply ingrained in sure, them. Sure, yeah. Now, for a period of time, the Taliban banned the sport in Afghanistan. The Taliban did? Yes. Was it too violent? Uh, they said it was immoral. Okay. Wow. Um, but since the U.S.-led invasion, the sport is back, bigger than ever, and uh, that's according to Los Angeles Times. But now, the Buzkashi Federation is attempting a marketing transformation. Uh, they've seen how big football and basketball have grown in the United States, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they are into it. So, Haji Abdul Rashid, who's head of the government-sponsored Buzkashi Federation, dreams of leagues, corporate sponsorships, television, and now they are trying to get it into the Olympic Games. Well, let me just tell you this, as far as trying to get your sport to catch on mm-hmm. in the United States. We just recently found out about soccer. Right. Or as the rest of the world calls it, football. Everybody in the world calls it football. We are the, late to the game. Uh, you know, 100%. Yeah, like forever. Um, nobody cared about it here forever. And then when it does become popular here, we change the name. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's par for the course. We're like, numbers? No, we're going to do those differently. (laughs) Roads? We're going to drive them differently. (laughs) We're a-holes and we like it. Um, That's kind of the thing. You know, we just do things our own way. and, And regardless of whether or not it's better, it's different. And that's how we're doing it. <laughs> we build a whole soccer. Co- that's bu- what it's called. <laughs> we build a whole country based on that philosophy. It is. You're welcome, world. <laughs> that's fascinating. It is important to respect and celebrate the diversity of culture from around the world, but that's fucking weird. 
And I mean that in the most loving way possible. Right. Well, I think it would be weirder if it had been created in like the last 100 years. <laughs> That's true. Um, uh, dudes, uh, you know what we should do? Uh, we're going to cut off this bird's head and we're going to toss it around a bit. Okay? Cool. Yeah. Um, but where it is rooted in their heritage and, yep. you know, right. it's... Uh, Good luck trying to get that to catch on, though, in the U.S. That's <laughs> no, never going to no. happen. Any hoozle, um did want to mention that we are just a week away from our next live show, Bridgeport, Connecticut. So excited. So behind on my research. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of work to do. Yeah. We'd love to have you join us. You can get tickets at theboxofoddities.com. The historic Bijou Theater, which Beautiful. is a nonstop operating. It's been operating nonstop. Since 1907. Zero beheaded calves. That we know of. We can't say that definitively. On the night that we'll be there, there will be zero beheaded calves. That is our pledge to you, Box of Oddities Freak. And until we see you again... Keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, (laughs) you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. All right, you ready? Um, no, I was laughing at a girl burning her tongue on her flat iron. God. uh... Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that. Because you're already listening to a podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.